In Acts chapter 8, Philip made his way to Samaria to tell the story of the Christ. This was significant for a number of reasons, but mostly because the Samaritans and the Jews didn't normally associate with one another. Well, you probably already knew that, but today we will examine more closely why these two groups came to be at odds. Welcome to episode 52, The Samaritans. Thanks for coming back to the Rethinking Scripture podcast. Today we're going to be taking a closer look at the rift between the Jews and the Samaritans. And I'm guessing if you've attended church at all, if you've read the Gospels at all, you probably already know that the Jews didn't get along with those who lived in Samaria. Well, today we're going to go into a little bit of the history of that from an Old Testament perspective. We're going to look outside the Bible at some sources that will give even a little more context to it. And after we've talked through the whole issue with the Samaritans, we are going to finish with just a short segment on Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. So most of us, if we've read our Bibles at all, are probably familiar with uh, some statements made in the Gospels or maybe here in the book of Acts about Samaritans. And we, just off the top of our heads, could probably come up with some Samaritan references, maybe not knowing exactly where they're from. For instance, we might be familiar with Jesus encountering a woman at a well and how she was a woman from Samaria and how Jesus had traveled through the region of the Samaritans to talk to her and then eventually to spend a couple days with several more people back from the town that she was from. We also might remember that when Jesus sent out people, he would say to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and to not go into the region of the Samaritans. And lastly, we might remember that when Jesus gave an example to somebody asking the question, who's my neighbor? He came up with a parable, a story that had to do with who were the Jews' neighbors. And the conclusion of that story was the people that you hate the most that live just to the north of you people in Jerusalem, the Samaritans are your neighbors. And look, they're even doing the work of God better than you are. So a lot just within the Gospels there. Here in the book of Acts, we have this episode in chapter 8 of Philip going down to Samaria and then a couple of the disciples or apostles going down as well. And it just reminds me that we tend to oversimplify rifts sometimes between people groups. We like to think that, oh, they just didn't get along and we don't really understand why. But there's a lot to the history of the Jews and the Samaritans that is knowable, that's actually in the Bible. And so it reminds me of the college survey classes that I would do for Old Testament survey or New Testament survey. When we came to this rift in either of those contexts, I would slow down and I would make sure that people understood, hey, this is the backstory for why the Jews and the Samaritans in the New Testament don't get along. This is why it seems so outlandish that Jesus would choose to travel through Samaria. It's because of this backstory. So I just want to take some time in today's episode to kind of walk you through some of that backstory, just because some of you might not be as familiar with it as maybe you are the stories in the gospel. So just to set up a little bit of history from the biblical perspective, the story of the Old Testament has a lot of conquering and exile stories in it. And why would it be that nations would want to conquer and then send people into exile? Well, it kind of stems back to the fact that most of the time, nations tend to operate on a deficit budget. <laughs> do, 
I think we understand that from a modern day perspective, but the same was true back in ancient times. Nations would operate on a deficit. And in the ancient world, there was no elaborate banking system. To do anything as a nation that was at a deficit, the basic way to solve that problem was to steal a country. So the idea is, if you can grab a country and you get to take their wealth and then be able to establish taxes and tolls and tribute, what you're doing as a nation is you're able to raise funds. And that was one of the basic ways that nations did it back in ancient times. And just to define, a tax is like a yearly payment from individuals, right, to a government. We understand that totally. A toll, we associate that with like a toll bridge. And that's exactly the same idea as it was in ancient times. It was a payment from people when they were traveling. If they would travel through a certain district, they would be forced to pay a toll. Just another way to raise funds to help even out your budget as a nation. And the last thing that I mentioned was tribute. Uh, this, this is a nation-to-nation payment toward a national debt. And so when, like the Assyrians, would go in and conquer a people, they would establish all three of these. They would tax them. They would create tolls for people traveling through that area, and tribute would be paid as well. And there was one specific method that conquering nations also used to prevent the conquered territories from rebelling against the sovereign rule of the new nation, and that was population switching. And this is the concept of exile. So in other words, if you leave a nation's population, like their military, their economy, and their leadership intact— Then they will reorganize and eventually defeat whatever small occupation force you have put in place. They will fight and they will declare their independence once again. So the easier system, instead of just leaving everything in place after you conquer them, is to take all the skilled people and the potential leadership out of a population, and then you deport them to another country that you have conquered. And this is what happens. This is exactly what happens in 722 BC to the Northern Ten Tribes. We find the story in the book of 2 Kings, and specifically we're going to be just in 2 Kings 17 and 18 here for a little bit. In verse 6 of chapter 17, it says, In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and carried Israel away into exile to Assyria and settled them in several places in the cities of the Medes. And verse 6 is probably one of those verses that you normally would just skip right over if you <laughs> happen to find yourself reading through Second Kings chapter 17. But there's something here. What I've just described about the nature of a conquering nation is summed up in what happens here to Israel. The king of Assyria captured Samaria. Samaria at that time was a part of Israel. And the king of Assyria carried Israel away into exile to Assyria. Now, that's not going to be everybody. We'll find that out later. They wanted to take the nation's population, the military leaders, the economy leaders, and move them into another place. And what verse 6 says is that they carried Israel away into exile to Assyria. And they settled them in the cities of the Medes. So they're taking Israel's leadership. They're moving them somewhere else. What else happens? Well, just further down in that same chapter, in verse 24, it says that the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and several other places that they had conquered and settled them in the cities of Samaria in place of the sons of Israel. So they possessed Samaria and lived in its cities. 
And then I love verse 25. It's the one that most small boys remember because it just seems so random and violent. It says, at the beginning of their living there, so the dispossessed people that are moved into Samaria from all these other places, at the beginning of the time when those people started living there, they did not fear the Lord. Well, that makes sense. Therefore, it says, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. Well, and this is a problem because the nations from where these people came from, they were exiled into Samaria and they don't know any of the customs of the land. And it is assumed by the people that because they don't understand the customs of the land, the God of that land is sending lions to kill them. So it's a problem, but Assyria knows what to do. Okay. Then the king of Assyria, verse 27, commanded, saying, Take there one of the priests which you carried away into exile, and let him go and live there, and let him teach them the custom of the God of the land. So it says one of the priests whom they had carried away into exile from Samaria came and lived at Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. Well, the problem with this is that the whole reason the northern ten tribes called Israel in this episode were taken into exile was because they weren't following correctly the way of the Lord. The northern king had set up altars and was preventing people from going back to the temple to actually worship the way they were supposed to. So the solution here is probably not much better than the problem that originally presented. They're sending a priest that doesn't really know how to worship the God of the land back to the land to teach people that are being eaten by lions. But even despite that, even with the priest coming back and maybe sharing a little bit about what he knows about the God of Israel, it still says in verse 29, But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the houses of the high places which the people of Samaria had made, every nation in their cities in which they lived. But in addition to this, it it says they also feared the Lord and appointed from themselves priests of the high places who acted for them in the houses of the high places. In verse 33, it specifically says they feared the Lord and served their own gods according to the customs of the nations from among whom they had been carried away into exile. So here, what we have, because of this conquering nation of Assyria, taking a portion of the people away into exile, leaving some in the land, and then bringing others from other places that brought their gods and the practices of worship with them from other places. These people begin not just to commingle their worship practices, but they also begin to commingle with marriage and establishing families. And these are the people that become the Samaritans that we see in the New Testament. Sometimes you will hear people talk about the Samaritans and say they're kind of a half-breed. In other words, they're not fully Jewish anymore because they've been marrying other people from other places. That's not only true genetically, but that's also true theologically. You've got some of the people worshiping the God of Israel the way maybe they were taught to, but then they're also bringing in worship of foreign gods that were brought with the people that were sent in exile. So coming out of this Second Kings background, there are thousands of foreigners that have settled in the land of Israel, and they brought their polytheism with them, and they corrupted the religion of the Lord.
And just to remind you some of the dates, the northern 10 tribes of Israel were taken into captivity by Assyria in 722 BC. And when we're doing BC, remember the numbers get smaller as we get uh, further along. Almost 100 years later, 90 years later, in 612 BC, Assyria then is conquered by Babylon. And because of the way Assyria did their population switching and their exiling, those northern 10 tribes are largely just lost to history. There's no real way for them to come back into the land because they have intermarried. They haven't stayed as their own separate population in the places they've gone to. So the northern 10 tribes, sometimes you'll hear of them being described as the lost tribes of Israel. And that's why, because they've intermarried and they've commingled with other people in other places. Once Babylon takes over Assyria, though, things are a little different. Because in 586 BC, Judah, which is the southern kingdom of the divided kingdom in the Old Testament, Judah is taken into captivity by Babylon. We see that in 2 Kings 24 and 25. Here, I'll just read a little bit out of 2 Kings 24, verse 14. It says, Then he, talking about Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, he led them away into exile, all Jerusalem and all the captains and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths, none remained except the poorest people of the land. And that's exactly what they would do again in population switching. They would take all the people with skilled labor. They would take all the potential leadership, all the military leaders, and they would take them out of their context, ship them to a place where they didn't know the language, where they were rendered largely just useless from an uprising standpoint. But in this case, those people that were taken out were taken into Babylon and, for the most part, kept together as a people group. And it's this people group that then, after Babylon is conquered by Persia in 539, Persia allows this people group to come back into the southern area and rebuild the temple and populate their homeland once again. And that's part of the reason why in the New Testament they're referred to as the Jews and not the Israelites, because Jews are from Judah. Those are the people from Judah, and Judah is the nation that was allowed to come back and live and populate the lower portion of the land. So if you were able to make it through that without totally falling asleep, you're honestly doing better than most of the students in the classes I taught. And that's kind of the basic information that I would give because it's that context. It's that background of how did the Samaritans, these people that were half-breeds, not just genetically, but also theologically, how did that come about? And it's that history that, if you understand it, helps to make some of the stories in the New Testament make a whole lot more sense. So it's not just in the Old Testament where we find some of the history of who the Samaritans were, but we can also go into the culture and the context of the stories in the New Testament that they were told into. What was the culture of the day for Jesus? And to do this, I'm just going to be reading some comments out of a book by Depp called All Roads Lead to the Text, Eight Methods of Inquiry into the Bible. And he suggests, for instance, for the story of the Good Samaritan, that in Near Eastern storytelling, 
The recitation of three occurrences of an event signified its completion. So in the parable of the Good Samaritan, we have the high priest who appears first, and he's a spiritual leader at the apex of the religious institutions of the day. And sadly, it's that person that neglects the needy person at the side of the road. Then, secondly, there's a Levite who arrives. He was subordinate religious professional, and because he wasn't at the apex, he might have a little more time in an emergency situation like this. But again, he abandons his duty of compassion. And those listening to the drama of the parable would expect a third participant to become the hero of the story. That's the way that they told stories in the ancient Near East with three occurrences of an event that signifies its completion. And for sure, there was a very anti-institutional sentiment that was prevalent in the first century, as it is in ours. And certainly the audience anticipated the spiritual champion to be a lay leader, not a priest or a Levite. But the champion of this story, people would expect them to be somebody that worked a 40-hour week job and also dedicated other 40 hours maybe to religious duties. And in the first century, that type of person would be the Pharisee. But to the crowd's amazement, when Jesus tells this story of the Good Samaritan, in this third slot, the completion slot, the hero slot, Jesus presents a Samaritan as the hero. And it's when we understand the background of how they told stories, that really enhances the meaning of the narrative. And it's a story like this, of the Samaritans and specifically the parable of the Good Samaritan, that would have reminded the Jews of one of their low points in their national history. And it's because it was the time when those imported nations set up shrines to their own idols. And even though they had a veneer of the worship of Yahweh, they were seen as totally impure. And it just so happens that when Jesus came on the scene, the conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans had once again intensified. It was while the Passover was being celebrated in Jerusalem, somewhere between six and nine of the common era, the Samaritans strewed human bones on the temple porches and the sanctuary during the night, desecrating the holiness of the temple. We read about that in Josephus's works. He's a Jewish historian. And as a result, it was the Samaritans that were excluded from the Passover for the first time. And the Sanhedrin declared that Samaritans should be publicly cursed in the synagogues with a daily prayer requesting that they might not be partakers of eternal life. And Depp says it's this statement that takes on special significance for the parable of the Good Samaritan. Since the lawyers begin the conversation with this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? To inherit eternal life, the lawyer must relate to the person for whom he is praying not to be a partaker of eternal life. And that's the irony that we often overlook just because we don't know it exists. Depp continues, the commandment to love one's neighbor, according to Jesus's perspective, included the Samaritan. Whereas for the normal Jew, only love for one's fellow countrymen was required. Then in his work, Depp also examines some extra-biblical literature that can also be profitable. He says the Samaritans were despised and not considered Jewish inhabitants, even though they had lived in Palestine for centuries. In some of the extra-biblical Jewish writings, it does say 
There are two nations that my soul detests. The third is not a nation at all. So what are those? The inhabitants of Mount Seir, one. The Philistines, two. And what's not a nation? It's described as the stupid people living at Shechem. (laughs) Those are the Samaritans. And it's those stupid Samaritans who were regarded as being on a level with the Gentiles in all things ritual and cultic. In the Mishnah, it states that he who eats the bread of the Samaritans is like the one who eats the flesh of swine. These unclean foreigners were forbidden to offer sin offerings at the temple as well. So as Depp points out, there is some extra biblical information about Samaritans that is confirmed in the details of the New Testament narratives. In John 4.22, Samaritans are regarded as idolaters who worship what they do not know. And one of the worst insults that a hostile Jew could cast upon Jesus was to call him a Samaritan. But that accusation in John 8.48 is given even stronger force with demon possession and Samaritan nationality closely identified. And that's because at that time, Samaria was considered to be a demon-possessed land. And in their eyes, Jesus was condemning himself by closely associating himself with a Samaritan woman. And here's how Depp concludes this. He says, in spite of these negative descriptions, Jesus continually highlights a new positive image of the Samaritans. In John 4, Jesus drinks from the same cup as a Samaritan woman. But through this encounter, the entire Samaritan community accepts the gospel message. Jesus meets this woman at a well, which, if you remember from previous episodes, recalls the stories of marriage proposals initiated by contact with women at the town's well. Jesus, like Isaac and Jacob and Moses, finds a wife, but this time it is the Samaritan nation. And such a story would incense the Jewish sensibilities, which demanded alienation from such impure people. Later in Luke's gospel, There's a Samaritan foreigner, we see this in chapter 17, verse 18, who distances himself from Jesus because he is an unclean leper. It's that man who returns thanks to God for his miracle cleansing and replaces the other presumably Jewish lepers as the model of spiritual devotion. And finally, Deb says, it is ironic that Jesus' parable took the title The Good Samaritan, which is a true oxymoron for any Jew in Second Temple Judaism. These examples, Deb says, place the biblical accounts in an unforgettable historical context. Breaking away from Depp's article there, all that said, all the history out of the Old Testament, all the stuff from extra-biblical sources and the context of the culture, all of that information goes into Acts chapter 8, when we see Philip going into Samaria. Now, why is Philip going in? Because the Jesus followers are starting to spread because of the persecution in Jerusalem. And it says that Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. Now, we often read this because of the way we read the Bible. We often read this as just strictly evangelistic. These people have never heard of Jesus before. Philip is going into a brand new area and teaching them something they know nothing about. But just based on the biblical narrative, that can't be true. All of the interaction that Jesus had with these people led to the ability of Philip to go into these places, preach the good news, not just of Jesus, but the updated information that had happened since Jesus visited that region. 
the fact that he died, that he was buried, that he rose again, and that he ascended to the right hand of the Father. So as we're reading about Philip and his preaching there and their acceptance of Jesus as the Christ, Christ is a term that they already believed in. They already believed in a Messiah. We know that from John 4. What the disciples and the apostles are doing is they're helping to redefine the term of of what Messiah means. That happened in Jerusalem, by the way, too. Nobody in Jerusalem believed the Messiah was going to die, but that's exactly what happened. So the idea of Messiah, the Christ, the idea of that character was in and through not only Israel, but it was in and through Samaria. And it was that concept that needed to be redefined based on Jesus's ministry. And that's what we see happening in Acts chapter 8. So just a couple of concluding thoughts about the Samaritans, and then we'll finish with Philip going down and speaking with the Ethiopian eunuch. In our study of the book of Acts, we've talked a lot about speaking in tongues and the gifts of the Spirit. And as I've pointed out, there are three times that Luke decides to actually mention speaking in tongues outrightly. Those are in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 10, and Acts chapter 19. But here we are in Acts chapter 8. And before leaving, I just want to mention once again that there are some people that believe what was happening in Acts chapter 8 when Philip was going down and preaching the gospel, the good news of Christ. Some people believe that it's possible that the Samaritans were speaking in tongues too, even though for some reason Luke didn't specifically say it that way. Well, what do I mean? In verse 12, it says, But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. And then it says, Even Simon, who's a character in this story, himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. It's those two verses, verses 12 and 13, that some people, when they come to this passage, conclude that what Luke may have been talking about here is that these people too, the Samaritans, not just the Jews, not just the Gentiles in Acts 10, not just the followers of John the Baptist in Acts 19, but here the Samaritans may also have spoken in tongues as well. Now, I hesitate to say that with any amount of certainty, but what I can conclude is exactly what the text says. What was being observed were signs and great miracles that were taking place. So whether it was the sign or the miracle of speaking in tongues that is being discussed or some other gift of the Spirit that was happening that confirmed the reception of the Holy Spirit, because Luke didn't make the distinction, we probably shouldn't either. It could have been that there was speaking in tongues and other miracles taking place, speaking in tongues just being part of that. So when you hear some people discuss that topic, sometimes they'll bring in Acts chapter 8 as an example. And it certainly does fit the pattern of new people groups being added in. You've got the Jews first. If it's the case here, you've got the Samaritans speaking in tongues. Next, we're heading to Acts 10, where the Gentiles are included. And then you've got another people group in Acts 19 that we'll be able to discuss as we get to it. 
And after Philip leaves Samaria, the way the chapter ends is he heads and meets up with an Ethiopian eunuch that's traveling on the road to Gaza. And again, your tendency might be, as you're reading through the book of Acts and people are coming in contact with new people that they share the gospel with, your tendency might be to just automatically assume that these people are not already believers in the true God of Israel, that they're not anywhere close to being considered faithful people. But here, for instance, this Ethiopian, he's from Africa. He is an infertile man. And when Philip finds him, he's in a desert region. It's an infertile place. But it's this eunuch that has just left Jerusalem. And you just got to ask the question, why would a eunuch from Ethiopia be traveling all the way to Jerusalem? And I would just suggest that it's not outside the realm of possibility that this man has some sort of faith already before Philip meets him on the road. Why would I say that? He's already reading the Jewish scriptures. He's reading out of the book of Isaiah, where, by the way, the prophet is writing about this Jesus character. And it's beginning with that scripture that Philip explains Jesus to the eunuch. And it's based on that scripture that the eunuch believes the story of Jesus. And then the text says that they come to some water. And that means that the desert has now passed. The infertile place has now passed. And they are now in a fertile place. And they have moved from that infertileness of the desert to a place of life. Well, the eunuch is baptized. And then it says that Philip is snatched away. And the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. And Philip knows that he went on his way rejoicing because he knows what the eunuch will read next in that same scroll out of Isaiah. So let's go back to Isaiah because this is just a really beautiful picture. The passage that the eunuch was reading from is Isaiah 53, 7, and 8. And it speaks of Jesus's death. Here, I'll just read from it. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And it's about this passage that the eunuch asked Philip, please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth and he says, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. The joy that Philip knows this eunuch will have, it follows the same progression of finding him in an infertile place and ending up in a very fertile place of water. A eunuch is infertile. He is an infertile man. But it's the next chapter in Isaiah that speaks directly to his circumstance. It's in the next chapter that it says, The barren one, having sons more numerous than the sons of the married one, It speaks of the fertility of the heavenly Zion. This eunuch had just visited the earthly Zion and come away without his Savior. But then he meets his Savior, and his Savior takes him from an infertile place to a fertile place. And that's what the Isaiah passage does as well. The eunuch knows he will not have to go back to the earthly Jerusalem again. And then in Isaiah 56, verses 3 through 5, it specifically speaks to the eunuch who will keep God's covenant. That eunuch, it says, will no longer be called a dry tree because I will call him within my walls one who will have sons and daughters. What Luke is doing 
by writing the story the way he wrote it. He is suggesting that this eunuch, who has been washed in those waters that day, will be made fertile. He's been invited to a land that will make him fertile again. And just a last note, uh, extra-biblically speaking, the Ethiopian Orthodox Coptic Church, they hold that it's this eunuch out of Acts chapter 8 who is the father of their church. And if that's true, it means that millions of people came to faith, have come to faith, continue to come to faith through the witness of this one eunuch. And at least in that way, God took this eunuch and made him into an Abraham, a father of many. Well, that's all the cultural context I have for today. I spent some time this last week planning out the rest of the year, the rest of the book of Acts, and we'll continue to march our way through and end up somewhere around the holidays. I'm doing that specifically so that we'll be poised at the beginning of the year to help launch my first book, Rethinking Rest. And we'll take several episodes at that point to go into a little more detail about some of the content in the book, the background, and why it is that anyone would ever possibly want to read it. Well, thanks for taking time to hang with me and learn a little bit more about Acts chapter 8, some of the background that helps us understand what it is that was going on here in the early church as the gospel spread throughout the world. Oh, and before we go, If you haven't taken time yet to give this podcast a rating or maybe a review, would you at least ask yourself the question, who is it that I know that might enjoy a good rethinking of the scripture? And if somebody comes to mind, would you consider recommending to that friend the Rethinking Scripture podcast? Mm -hmm.